This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, the most advanced technology combined with market-leading content and West's history of trusted editorial excellence. Helping legal professionals save time is what they've been doing for over 125 years. Learn more at westlawnext.com. People often don't want to part with their money, especially when they're divorcing. I'm Stephanie Francis Warren, and today we're discussing family law assets recovery with Randall M. Kessler, an Atlanta, Georgia lawyer, and Ira Friedman, who practices in Beverly Hills. Randy and Ira, welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Let's start this out. I have a question for both of you, and Ira, perhaps you want to take this first. Are there some ethical ways to shield assets in a divorce? And if so, can you give me some examples? Well, unfortunately, it's a slippery slope between shielding assets and fraud. And in California, you're required when you first file a, a, a for dissolution of marriage, which is the California equivalent of divorce, uh, you have to disclose all of your assets. And if you don't disclose them, the other person can not only get half of the asset when it's uncovered. They could get all of it at the discretion of the court. The best example in California was uh, a woman, it's not my case, a woman had a winning lottery ticket. She didn't disclose it, and then when it came for the hearing, the judge awarded the husband all of it, not half. So it's a very difficult situation to do, uh, and I don't usually get, I won't get involved in that. You know, let them go somewhere else. Well, I'm curious, and you must have seen this in your practice sometimes, how do you handle a client who maybe wants to do some asset shielding that's not right? How do you say, look, you're being an idiot? I mean, what, what do you do? Well, you want me to take that one, Ira? Sure, go ahead. Well, you know, what we do is uh, we do a lot of social engineering, you know, by just by our nature. People come to us when they're hurt, when they're having a hard time, and they want to screw the other one over. They want to take advantage, and they want to win at all costs, and and, you know, it's easy for us because we can sit back and say, down the road, you won't feel that way. Your anger will subside and you'll regret your behavior. Or this isn't what's in the best interest of your children, so maybe you should rethink your course of conduct. And I, I think it's in that genre of issues that we face all the time as divorce lawyers. You know, when we get the call from someone who says to me or to my staff, I'd like to hire you because I want to be able to shield my assets in a divorce, you know, alarm bells go off for us. It's sort of like the, you know, danger, Will Robinson, <laughs> You know, somebody here wants to do something unethical. And the question isn't really, you know, do we tell them not to do it? The question is how do we tell them not to do it? And it's how do we socially engineer or how do we correct or, or redirect behavior? And I think it goes to how do you want to be perceived? How do you want your life to look three years down the road? The shortcut is to say you'd rather be honest and be accused of doing something than to be caught lying about it. You know, an easy example is adultery. When people say, I'm going to lie on the witness stand about adultery, and we say you can't lie, number one. But secondly, if you do lie and you get caught, then you're twice as much in trouble. So trying to shield assets is really, you know, there's no good way to do it. It, it rarely works. But more importantly, even if it does work, the risk of getting caught almost always outweighs the benefit of shielding the assets. You know, if you get caught hiding a million dollars, the judge is going to think you had $10 million somewhere else because how will you be able to prove that that was the only lie you committed, that was the only million dollars that you hid once they find it? So is there an ethical way to shield assets? Maybe. 
you know, I think the term is more appropriately called asset protection, and that's probably more appropriate for a financial planner or somebody like that. And to sort of carry on in that note, I don't think of it as shielding assets. I think of it as how do I make sure my client gets more of it or the other side doesn't get as much of it as they want. For that second part of what you said, how does one do that? Well, there, there are a couple ways, and, and Ira, you can jump on top of me and, and cut me off whenever you want, but I, my, what I was about to say is that you think of where would people want their money to be, and the easy answer, the really, really easy thing that we have in divorce is kids. If you've got a million-dollar estate and you're afraid that your wife or your husband is going to get 500000 of that, then go to a financial planner and put $200,000 away for the kids. Your spouse will probably agree to that. Lock it up. Then you're each only arguing about the remaining 800000 and you have protected and shielded 200000 that nobody's going to be upset with you for doing. That's, that's sort of the easy way. There are a lot of other ways that financial planners and, and people that are experts in estate planning can, can help you with, with irrevocable trust and family-limited partnerships. There are a lot of vehicles that let you protect assets. But, of course, if you're protecting it for yourself, the court can always allot money to the other side as alimony or make you pay money to offset the money that you've frozen. So there's really, it's hard to shield assets because when you freeze your own assets, the court can make it up in other ways. And, and I'll defer to my colleague on the West Coast if he's got... Well, a couple points I want to bring up. One, and I think I mentioned about the lottery ticket case, and the, the, the backstory was the husband's attorney said, just give us half and we'll be happy. And the, the wife's attorney says, no, I won't do that. And as a result, you know, the, the wife ended up losing all of the, the lottery-winning case. But here's the, here's the interesting thing about transferring property into somebody else's name. This is not my case, but in a, a very successful business, there was a cosmetics business, and there was also some real estate that the business operated out of. So the father thought he'd get very clever. He transfers the real estate to his adult children, and then... Further down the line, he said, okay, kids, you can transfer it back to me now. And they said, no, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> so uh, he, he sort of screwed himself in that deal. And that can happen, you know, when you transfer property to a third party. And then at the end of the day, they say, I'm not interested in transferring it back. So now what he was trying to do to evade, you know, the wife saying, well, I don't really own this real estate anymore. My the children own it then they didn't want to give it back, and there's nothing he could do. He transferred it to them. It's, it's hard to shield assets. And, you know, another argument that we have with our own clients is, you know, we tell them there, there are reasons that cliches develop and are popular, and a very popular one is pigs sleep in the gutter. And when you try to take all the money out of the pot and give it to your kids, like Ira just said, or give it to a family member or shield it in some sort of trust, courts, spouses, lawyers, Financial investigators find a way to make it up in sometimes ways that are more painful than had the original pot just been split right down the middle. Now, alternatively, what are some ways to uncover assets that someone tries to hide that many lawyers might miss? Well, there are a lot of ways you can uncover assets. I mean, I know lawyers are going to be listening to this and discovery, 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 but it's not as much discovery. It's targeted discovery and most importantly, quick discovery. You know, we all have the right to subpoena bank records, and a lot of lawyers will wait until the husband or the wife fails to provide tax returns and bank account records and credit cards. The simplest thing to do is to immediately subpoena 
the records before the spouse can close accounts or interfere with it, and then do the discovery to the spouse so that you see what they don't produce and why they don't produce it, and you've already caught them when they missed the April bank statement, which is the one where they transferred the $250,000 out. Um, it's an easy answer, it's an obvious answer, but it's an important answer, which is targeted discovery. And the most important investigator, the most important spy that exists in any case is the client. Clients know so much more about their spouse than we will ever know. They know more about their spouse than the banker will know. They know their tendencies. And just talk with your client and ask them, what does he do? Who does he trust? Well, who does he talk to about his money? Take an immediate deposition of his best friend or the person that he relies on for financial advice, um, casual or otherwise, the person he golfs with. I think it's it's not as much what you do, but when you do it. And so many lawyers wait until the process unfolds and they do the standard, typical boilerplate discovery. And then three months into the case, after they've finished the other trials that they've had waiting for years to try, they start focusing on this case. And the defensive party, the rich party, the moneyed party has already manipulated and covered and moved and transferred. So I think more importantly than how you do it is, you know, do it from the start. You're going to have to do it anyway. Why not do it right at the get-go? Well, I was going to mention that uh, unless somebody is in, like, either the garment business or the diamond business, which are notorious for, you know, operating on, on cash, and in diamond business uh, where there's almost no written records, intentionally so, most every business, there's going to be a paper trail. It may take a little effort to go from point A to B to C to get the records, but eventually it's going to come out. If As an example, if somebody has uh, taken money from a business and put it offshore, there's going to be a paper trail, at least to the money going offshore. Whatever happened after that, it may not matter because the court may say, look, you know, you took X dollars. We don't care what you did with it. You're going to be charged for, you know, half of it in California. Or if it's concealed, you know, the other half. So uh, I think Randy's right. Most of the information you need probably, A, is staring you right in your face, and, B, uh, if it's not, then the client can fill in the gaps from the records. Uh, I have found that Private investigators, by and large, are useless because most information between your client and noodling around on the Internet is readily available. And, you know, once you start following the paper trail, you'll probably come on to things, you know, as far as what happened. And if it involves real estate, by just by definition, everything has to be in writing anyway. So you're going to find out what uh, happened with that in information, and in California, where there's title companies, you can get, you have a good relationship, you can get all kinds of information from the title company as far as the chain of title, as far as what happened to property, as opposed to having to schlep down to the county recorder and, you know, going through the index. The, uh, the, the title companies actually have a better database than the county recorder. So that's, that's one of the things that I think is worthwhile. Plus, there's a number of services that you can subscribe to that are not really expensive that will give you information, you know, regarding uh, uh, real property that's owned around the state and, and so on, uh, you know, as far as the big ticket items. Uh, what are some of those services? What are their names? Well, you know, Lexus and, and, uh, and Westlaw have those uh, additional. Sure, the personal property. 
Right, they have that, and, and you know, I'm not endorsing either one, but there's also some other services, you know, smaller services that, I, and I don't even know the names of them here. We end up getting most of our information about real property from the title company because literally at a touch of a button, they can get almost any piece of information you want, depending on your relationship with them. So we very rarely even have to pay for much of that, but there's... There's some other services in California that have that kind of information. And there's certain other information you can get if you sign up in California for Department of Motor Vehicle Information. But by and large, unless someone's a car collector, you know, I don't know what, you know, value as far as that's going to give you other than you find out they own a couple cars unless they're, a, you know, a classic car collector. So that is usually the best way to get information. The tax return is going to be at least the starting point. Because if they own something, you know, an interest in a partnership or something, that'll point your nose in the right direction as far as subpoenaing records from the LLC or the limited partnership uh, or banks if there was any interest paid. Uh, and uh, also you'll probably want to uh, subpoena financial statements because, you know, when people are uh, applying for a loan, they put down all kinds of great stuff. And well, Everyone's rich when they need money, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, and as some judges have said, when they see how much somebody makes, you know, digressing it to support, and now they say they're making very little, some judges have said, when were you lying, then or now? Uh, because exactly they'll, right. they'll puff on their financial statement, but also it'll show a roadmap of various assets, which will give you an, uh, another area to subpoena records from. Um. I'm I'm curious. You talked about getting a lot of this information from your client. Is it hard sometimes with certain clients to get the information out of them that you need? And if so, how do you how do you get that? Randy, do you want to take that first? Sure. Well, I mean, some clients are naive. They're just not financially astute, and they don't want to be, and they shouldn't have to be, um, and they need assistance. You know, we had a case. We represented the controller of a multinational company. He was a financial controller, so he certainly knew his assets and the money. But the wife not only didn't know the assets, she didn't speak English. She was foreign. And so what we recommended, and I did this on behalf of my client, the husband, we recommended that the other side hire a forensic accountant that my client paid for. We knew it would not be a fair fight and there would be no settlement as long as she felt like she was in the dark. So we hired a forensic accountant and showed the forensic accountant all of the documents so the, document, so the expert could say, let me show you that what he says is right, or, you know, or if she found some holes, she would have poked holes. So it's okay to get your own client, a financial expert, to explain things to your own client, as well as to dig for the other side's um, information. You know, there's what we really do is we hire accountants to look for smoke, and people might say, well, you can see smoke, can't you? And the answer is I can see smoke, but based on the color of the smoke, I can't tell if it's an acid fire or a gas fire or a paper fire or a coal fire. But that's what forensic accountants and forensic experts on financial matters do. They can look at the smoke and they can tell there's something missing here, there's something not right. And in any case where there are significant assets, and by that I mean probably a million dollars or more, or maybe a little bit less than a million dollars, it's worth five to ten thousand dollars to at least let them look, let the experts look for smoke. Now, if they don't see any smoke, great, you don't spend any more money. But if they see smoke, you might pay them a little bit more because you want to find out where the smoke's coming from, if it looks awkward or funny or uh, weird to the experts. But having a relationship with a good financial expert or two or five who's qualified and trained is invaluable for any divorce lawyer. I think um, 
you know, I, I learned how to be a lawyer. I learned how to research the law. I learned a little bit about counseling clients. I'm learning every day how to practice law. I am not a forensic expert. That's not what I do. I'm not trained as a CPA, and I know my limitations. I, I know enough to say this is over my head, and I will be outsmarted, outwitted, and outlawyered if I don't have some expertise on my side. So when the assets are there, you know, it's sometimes hard to tell a client who's paid you $20,000 to pay somebody else five or $10,000. They think we can do it all. We should be able to do everything. But that's, I think, invaluable to make sure the client knows that there's an expert looking at those numbers, and that will save them lawyer's fees because for me, at over $500 an hour to look at a financial affidavit or a tax return, it will take me twice as long to find something in it that an expert who charges three, four, or $500 an hour could probably find in 10 minutes. So I, I, I tend to rely on, uh, after I've gone through some things, forensic accountants, and in California, I mean, there's, there's probably a half dozen of what I like to call the usual suspects in the field. And, uh, you know, when you feel comfortable with one or two or three of them, depending on if the other side hires them first, it's interesting how they can uncover all kinds of information that either you missed or you're not sophisticated enough to, to, to come up with. And also the, the same process is with them as with your own client is where, they may find uh, item A, B, and C, which will lead you to the rest of the information. So they are very valuable uh, beside their core function of deciding how much is available for support and what the assets truly are. Uh, and they, you know, they are good at sniffing out things. Can they always sniff out everything? No, not always. Uh, I don't know if you want at this point to give you some examples of some of the things they've ways they've come up with things. Sure. Okay, I'll give you an example that was that was not my case, but <clears throat> this one accountant was doing an appraisal of the value of a, a beauty salon, which you know has a lot of cash, and a lot of it obviously didn't go through the books. So one of the things they determined is how many towels were used per customer by actually observing. And then they were able to extract the number of towels and what the average bill was. And that's how they came out with how much the business was grossing. Uh, that's one example. Uh, there's other examples. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of some other ones that they've come up with uh, creative ways of determining how much uh, money a business takes in. Uh, sometimes... Well, there's circumstantial evidence, Ira, just like in the simplest case where you don't have a picture of a duck, but you have... Duck droppings and duck, you know, yeah. recordings. Yeah. Circumstantial evidence can work the same way in financial investigations. I'll give you another example. Uh, either, and it works for some uh, lawyers who are criminal lawyers, and it also works for some type uh, of psychiatrists. And I'll tell you how it works in both examples because they're sort of the same. Criminal lawyers, by definition, have very little paperwork and they usually just get a flat fee for each portion of the case, you know, sort of a, a fee for the arraignment, a fee for the prelim, and a fee for the trial. And as a friend of mine who's a criminal lawyer said when I said, well, you send out a bill, he said, what's a bill? Because he doesn't have any bills. He just, you know, cash and carry. But one of get the your money up front. Right. And, and, you know, some criminal lawyers get their money in cash. So you figure, how do you, how do you back into that? Well, get a copy of their appointment book. And even if they want to block out the name, if it shows that they were, you know, meeting with a client or, which I don't think you can block out, 
if it says they had to be in a certain department at a certain time, uh, what, unless they were doing all this work for free, you're going to be able to back in, you know, how much did you get for appearing in this department on such and such a date and so on. And the same thing is true with psychiatrists. Some psychiatrists, by definition, keep no notes. And the reason is if their records are subpoenaed, it'll be a blank sheet of paper with an address, a billing address, and that's it. Uh, and you say, why do they do that? Well, it's to protect the patient, but more so, one of the things some psychiatrists do, which has nothing to do with this part of it, is they keep in their appointment book the medications that they've prescribed at where they've penciled in the appointment. But again, that appointment book is going to show, you know, how many people they had coming in a day. So that's that's sort of a, a way to back into the income. Does it work all the time? No, it doesn't work all the time. But uh, a lot of times if the other side feels that you're on to them, they may decide to, uh, you know, have a confession of what's really going on because... You know, as Randy said earlier, if the judge thinks that you're only hiding, you say you're only hiding a million, uh, the judge may think, well, if he only admitted to a million, maybe there's 10 million he's hiding. Uh, and on the credibility scale, you start to go down very rapidly with a judge. You know, there are some experts. There's a, I, I gave a presentation to a group called International Association for Asset Recovery, and that's all they do. They're lawyers that they collect big dollar amounts when they're big judgments. And uh, one of my co-presenters said the way you deal with people that hide assets is you have to think of them like rats because they think I stole this money fair and square and I'm not giving it up. And so, yeah. you know, we have the sense of fair play as lawyers that, you know, full disclosure, et cetera. But if you're dealing with someone who is not going to disclose, you've got to think of everything you can do to make them disclose it. And like Ira said, if they think you're on to them, when they're backed into a corner, they may try to find a way out by saying, yeah, I, I admit to this or I admit to that. They may think they're doing it because they're good people. They're doing it because you've caught them or you're going to catch them because you've just asked their best friend, their receptionist, whoever it is, you know, about where they were on certain dates and times, and they know you're getting to the pot of gold. Better for them to look honest like they've disclosed it, even though the reason they're disclosing it is because they knew they'd be caught. Let's go back. I want to go back to what Ira said about the attorney's appointment books or the psychiatrist's appointment books. Perhaps this is a stupid question, but I'm curious. Is it hard to get a judge to give that to you in terms of work product? Well, there's re you can redact. Look, I'm sending out a request for, you know, a lot of attorney's fees today, and I'm redacting yeah. what's confidential. There are things that are confidential and things that are not. Where a lawyer is on a certain day is certainly not confidential. Who a lawyer is meeting with may be confidential. But, you know, you can certainly, you can certainly ask, and you can certainly make them think you're going to get it and put the pressure on, it, it uh. probably will get most of it. But if it says that uh, at 8.30 the, uh, the lawyer was supposed to be in Department 100 for the People versus Smith, mm -hmm. I don't th uh, that's public record. That is public record, yeah. I don't think he can protect that. Maybe in the afternoon he has an appointment at 2 o'clock. He can block out the name, but he's got the fact there's an appointment. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is if it's sufficient enough information that you were trying to get – the court could appoint a special master to review the records. You wouldn't get to see them, but the special master could review them and, and find out information. I was also curious, when you're dealing with clients and their assets, are there sometimes when they want to fight over something that they want to hang on to, 
and you just have to tell them it's just not worth it. And how, how do you get that message across? How do you tell them it's not worth it? Yeah. Well, one thing is you tell them how much it's going to cost to fight about it with very little chance of getting it. But how do you, you know, how do you tell them it's not worth it? They're, uh, you just tell them. What we try to tell people is full disclosure is always better. For just not just because it's the right thing to do, but it's also a better strategy. And again, let's use the adultery example because it's much more vivid and easier to imagine type of example. But if we're calling, if, if adultery is relevant in your state, and you're accusing the other side of adultery, sometimes you don't want to bring the adulteress or the the girlfriend or the boyfriend into court because you'd rather the judge, or in Georgia sometimes the jury, imagine what the person is like, and imaginations go wild. So if somebody's hiding assets. And it smells like they're hiding it, but the, but the other side just can't prove it. Well, that imagination is going to spark a lot of wonder. And if you know you're trying to cover up things, and you're covering up, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, and the other side can show the judge you're having a hard time finding information. They think it's there, they can't really find it. It sounds fishy. If the judge gets wind that something fishy is going on, the judge's imagination is going to run rampant. So, I mean, full disclosure is just better for so many reasons, aside from just that it's moral and ethical and, and right. The other thing is, depending on the size of the asset, if you're trying to hang on to $50,000 and it's costing you money to fight and file motions for protective orders, you know, you're going to spend more on attorney's fees and delay, and the other side's never going to settle if they don't feel like they've had full disclosure, uh, at least not until they've fought and done as much as they can. There's just so many reasons that make sense when we try to persuade our clients that it's not worth fighting to hold on to it or to hide it, given the risk that if it's found or if, even if it's not found, if you look like you're trying to hide, um, you're going to come off ten times worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me turn the question I just had. Let's suppose that, it, and, and you'll see where I'm going with this, uh, you know, first of all, family law is fueled by emotion rather than logic in a lot of cases. Let's assume an asset is disclosed. It's not a case where it's an undisclosed asset. One of the spouses says, I want to keep the house. And you try to tell them, look, you make a dollar a month, and the house costs two dollars a month to maintain. You can't afford it. Same discussion. Sometimes they will argue with you for hours on end. But I want to keep the house, and you try to explain logically. You know, you can't afford it. They said, but you know, I've lived there all this time. The kids grew up there. You know, I want to die in the house, and and so on. So even even on that basis, it's a problem because of the emotional component of dissolutions uh, that people get fixated on certain things. Uh, and it isn't always the high-ticket items sometimes. Sometimes it's the smaller items, but it's the same problem you face, and probably it's magnified more if it's an undisclosed asset. But Randy's right. You have to tell them it's going to cost you $2 to keep a dollar, and sometimes they don't even care. Ira, what's one of the most unusual ways you have found someone's assets that they were trying to hide from your client? Actually not. I, you know, I don't really end up having unusual things. I've always found the best information is staring in the face. So I, I've never really had situations where that's happened. Uh, oh, come on, Ira. See, I've heard, we all talk about Come on, I know this is a podcast, and we want to make sure it's full disclosure. So yeah. Ira's always telling me the stories where he goes trash diving and puts on a scuba uniform. And- <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish. He found some great, some great stuff in those big trash bins out in Beverly Hills. No, but I'll tell you, no, I will tell you a story about that. A private investigator that uh, I've never used him per se, but I'm friendly with him. He's a, he's a funny guy to talk to. 
in Beverly Hills, you're not allowed to go into a dumpster. Huh. Uh, it's illegal. So that having been said, the interesting thing about it is, he told me, he says, you know, sometimes when our people are going down the alleys and we knock over a dumpster, we feel obligated to put the stuff back. <laughs> <laughs> After, of course, they've taken everything out of it. But I, I just always felt that was interesting. You know, the, the problem with that is, you know, that's another thing you have to consider. Let's assume you, you do this dumpster diving. First of all, a lot of people now get more savvy. They, they um, shred things with a cross-cut shredder because if you use the other kind of shredder, they can put it back together. So that's one problem. The other problem is whether it's cost-effective because in a lot of cases – you're going to spend $100 to find something like this. Uh, I can tell you a different type of example where uh, one of our colleagues hired one of these uh, computer experts to reconstruct something, spent a fortune, and they ended up coming up empty. Mm. That's the other thing. Sometimes one spouse says, I know my spouse is hiding assets. And the accountants go through and spend a ton of money, and they said, it's always possible. We can't find anything. So, again, you've got to do a cost analysis to see if it's worthwhile. Randy, how about you? Do you have an unusual story to share with us about how you well, found assets? Well, the dumpster diving is what you hear about. And, um, you know, this, you know from based on what you guys are saying, though, this dumpster diving, is that sort of thing even worth it? I mean, it sounds like you're much you better know, off if you're a forensic accountant. Look, you can talk about a needle in a haystack, and Ira and I have been around long enough that we've heard amazing stories. I mean, the best way to do it is to do it the old-fashioned way, hard work, discovery, searching, thinking it through, looking at people's habits. But, you know, we can't say don't do it because as soon as you tell somebody that a private investigator won't work, and I agree with Ira, they spend a lot of money and they rarely come up with gold. But, you know, there are occasions. We had an occasion, and again, we have jury trials in Georgia. Adultery matters in Georgia. And my client was the spouse, the, the victim's spouse, and her husband, we were sure, was cheating. They hadn't had sex in three years. He'd been working out, coming home late. You know, all the signs that point to him having sex with somebody else. And we told her she didn't need a private investigator. The jury was going to be sure he was cheating, and she hired one anyway. Well, the night before trial, manna from heaven. We got a call that her private investigator, who she had paid, despite us telling her that it probably wasn't worth it, called, and this is what happened the night before trial. The private investigator was following the girlfriend, and the private investigator was following her too closely and got into a wreck with her. Mm. And when she got out of her car to talk about the wreck, the girlfriend was on the t cell phone and said to the private investigator, not knowing it was a private investigator, I'll be with you in just a minute. I'm on the phone with my fiancé. You know? Mm. Bingo. We had the phone records. You know, we had the phone number. And that was it. She didn't know that she was talking to a private investigator, talking about being engaged to my client's husband. You know, so sometimes you do get lucky. So when you ask, has it ever happened, certainly things like that happen. You know, you get lucky. I've got three or four stories like that. I'm sure Ira has a few, but... We only have three or four stories like that because we see thousands of clients over the course of our career, and they're so memorable because they are so rare an occasion that you get something where somebody really does find the certificate of deposit that they thought had been discarded. You know, it, it happens. It does happen. And the only way to be sure sometimes is to spend the money, but I can't in good faith tell my client to spend ten dollars or $20,000 on a private investigator unless I really think that there's a chance or I think there's no other chance to find it. So it sounds like don't spend the money on the PI, spend it on the accountant, unless your client insists. 
or yeah, targeted PIs, or, or take depositions, do the discovery, and then when you know which account or which country's bank accounts or which area of town you need to send a PI to, then maybe have it targeted, but not a, a, a blanket private investigator, please go follow my husband and hope you find out how much money he's got. Most of the time, the, the PI tells you stuff you already know, and a lot of times, if I've hired somebody, I tell them I don't want to know these five things I already know. I don't need them to, to tell me the obvious that they own the home at one, two, three, four, five Main Street. I already know that. And most of them, you know, they, they restate the obvious. You know, I don't find very much uh, use in that. I, I'm sure that PIs who hear this uh, podcast not going to be very happy, but that's too bad. Well, or pri private investigators that work with financial institutions, maybe, or but just specialize. I mean, Saying to somebody, it's like saying, let's go fishing. Well, if you want to catch a fish, do you just throw a little line in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? No, you figure out what kind of fish you want to catch, what time of year, what time of day, what type of bait, where they likely are, where they're likely to be, and then you purchase the right kind of equipment and you go to that specific area and you fish. And it's a much better chance that you're going to catch the fish you want if you've not just said, here's $5,000, can you find out how much money we've got? All right. Well, gentlemen, I think that's everything that I have for you today. Did either of you want to add anything else? I, I think it's been wonderful talking about this and thinking about yeah. what to say. I think, again, the easiest is usually the most effective. I think depositions where people can, you can see that they're wiggling and uncomfortable instead of writing a written interrogatory where you don't know how creative they're being. But uh, I think it's just common sense. Don't forget common sense. Think about how you would hide money from somebody and how you would be found out, and then use that to your advantage. Okay. Well, I can say in California, if adultery was uh, involved in uh, dissolutions of marriage, it would back the courts up for five years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's so much more fun, right? I'm sure it is. Um, come, try come try a jury trial out here in Georgia sometime, Ira. You'll have fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both for your time. I really appreciate it. This ABA Journal podcast has been brought to you by Westlaw Next, the most advanced technology combined with market-leading content and West's history of trusted editorial excellence. Helping legal professionals save time is what they've been doing for over 125 years. Learn more at westlawnext.com.